Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. If you'd like to be open your Bibles to Colossians, the first chapter. Colossians, the first chapter. In a few minutes, we'll begin there and look at some various passages that look that, uh, where, where we will study the church and look at God's view of how He wants us to understand His church. It has been a wonderful day here. A wonderful time of worship. Several guests were with us this morning that have been invited and even some that have been immersed into Christ. And we are so thankful uh, for them and for the encouragement they are to us. And then this afternoon, there were several in the congregation that went out and continued to ask individuals if they would uh, come and be a part of our series of lessons that will continue uh, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And we would encourage everybody to come and be a part of that. Today, there were 992 doors knocked, 336 contact cards, or, or 336 contacts where individuals were actually talked to, the doors were open, 21 contact cards, and six more Bible studies were set up this afternoon. That gives us a total of 6,106 doors so far have been knocked inside the city of Mount Juliet. Uh, 2,498 contacts have been made at the door, and then 115 contact cards. Be continuing in your prayers for this work and be continuing in your involvement in this work in any way that God has given you the ability and the opportunity to do so. And to God we give the glory uh, for all that is being done. When I was 13 years old, I experienced what I guess every one of us have experienced. But it really shook me at the moment and it put me to thinking. I was working for a retirement home. It was a five-story retirement home and, and just doing odd jobs on the grounds and on the inside. And one of the things that they told us to do, that if the people wanted us to come in and clean their windows, that that was our discretion. We could go in and do that if we wanted to. And a particular uh, retiree, a lady, elderly lady, she invited me in and, and I cleaned her windows and even went to the outside there and stood on the ledge and cleaned her windows. And, and in conversation... She asked me where I went to church, and I told her. And then in her reply, she told me where she went to church. And then I heard something that I'd never heard before. As she said, well, one church is as good as another. We're all headed to the same place. I'd never heard that. I'd never heard that one church was as good as another. We were headed to the same place. Because I'd never heard it, I had no idea how to respond to that. Because I'd never heard it, I didn't know if I should agree to that or if I should disagree to that. And so naturally, as I began seeing passages about the church and the Scriptures, I began to pay much closer attention. And whenever I heard preaching and teaching about the church... I paid a lot more attention. Friends, tonight, I'd like to invite you into a study where it doesn't matter who here is right or wrong because there's not anybody here that is the Savior. We're not setting out to say, hey, I can win this one or you can win this one. Tonight, let's ask the Savior the one that gave us His covenant, the New Testament. And let's see what He says about His church. And let's see that if to the Lord, that He's satisfied with the idea of one church 
is as good as another. When we look in Colossians, the first chapter, we see the components of the Lord's church. He states it very briefly in verse 18. He says, and he is the head, and the he is talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Jesus says, I want to show you a head and a body. One being, if you will, a head and a body. And he says, this is real simple. He says, I'm the head and the church is the body. Now we need to stop and ask ourselves, is Christ deformed? Is Christ the head of multiple bodies? He didn't say that. As a matter of fact, before he ever established his church, in Matthew the 16th chapter and verse 18, he told Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now notice again, he speaks of the church being singular. I will build my church. And then notice, this church is going to be safe from the flames and the gates of Hades. He doesn't promise that to anyone else's church. Look with me, if you will, to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, we have what is a portion of the text that we've already sung tonight in one of the songs. And as we read this in its fullness of three verses, Ephesians 4, 4, 5, and 6, is page 1039 in the Bible that's in your pews there with you, 1039. And notice here we have seven ones. I sometimes, just for my own personal opinion, I refer to this passage oftentimes as the hardest scripture in all of the Bible. Because you see, seven times he tells us of things that exist, or either beings that exist, and seven times he uses the most exclusive number that there is. Every time he says, there's one of these. You see, if he would have said there's two of them, and that would make it easier. We'd have options. Well, you want this faith or you want this faith? Do you want this hope of your calling or you want this hope of your calling? You see, we would have options if he would say, there's two of these or there's three of these or there's four of these. But every time he says, there's one. In other words, if we're going to follow God's plan, if we're going to submit to God, he says, there's one. Well, notice these seven ones as we begin in verse four. The very first one is about, remember the body is the church. Remember, Christ is the head of his body, the church. How many bodies, Lord? He says, there's one body, one spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, just as you're called in one hope of your calling. What's your hope to get to heaven? There's not an option. It's not a multiple choice, and you get to choose whichever one that we want. There's one hope of our calling. And then we talk about the Savior. There's one Lord, and there's one faith. Now think about that. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. There is one system of belief that comes about from individuals that follow the New Testament. Now, yes, there are many other faiths, but he says there's only one faith that's right. And so, friends, tonight we're not saying, hey, I want you to be a part of my faith. And you shouldn't be saying, I want you to become a part of my faith. All of us should be saying, you know what, there's only one faith that's right, and it's the faith that belongs to the Lord that he's offered us through his covenant. I want that one faith. Now, notice as he continues here, there's one baptism in verse 5, and we'll look at that more tomorrow night. And then he says, and one God and Father of all who's above all and through all and in you all. So we go back to that very first one for tonight's study. 
Lord, how many churches are there? And the Lord says, there's one. There's one that is His. There's one that belongs to Him. There's one that is connected to the head, and it's His body, the church. So where does this come from? This idea that as long as people are religious, as long as they're spiritual, as long as they speak in the name of Jesus, that one faith is as good as another when the Lord says there's only one faith. Or one church is as good as another when the Lord says there is only one church. Look with me, if you will, to John, the 10th chapter. Perhaps this is one passage that sometimes is taught in a little bit of a misleading way. In John, the 10th chapter, in verse 16, the Lord is speaking. This bill be on about 949 or 950 in the Bible that's in your pews. In John, the 10th chapter, Jesus, now keep in mind, this is before the church was established. So when you think about this on a timeline, this was before the church was established. So this is still under when Israel was God's chosen. Of course, Israel, that that was primarily the Jews, uh, unless there was some that had been converted through Judaism and, and, and circumcised and all of that, but primarily the Jews. And so he's speaking in a prophetic sense of how when his church comes about to being, that it's not going to be for one nationality of people. And notice what he says in 16. Jesus is saying in a prophetic sense, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so some have taken the first half of this verse and they said, see, there it is. This is the multiplicity of churches. This, this, is, this is how we know that it's all right because the Lord says to one group, hey, I have a flock of sheep here. And then he says, I have others that, that are out here as if to say, hey, everything's okay, but that's not at all what's being talked about here. Notice, as a matter of fact, the last half of the verse clarifies it. The last half of the verse says they must be brought in to what? The one fold, the one flock. And the flock, oftentimes, throughout the rest of the New Testament, is called the church. And they're brought in that one flock, and how many shepherds do they have? One shepherd. And so the very teaching, oftentimes, that is taken to to promote the idea of one church is as good as another, if you read the last half of the verse, or if you know the setting that the verse is used, it's so clear that that's not at all what is being taught. Look at another passage in the 15th chapter of John. Turn over just a few pages in your Bible. In John, the 15th chapter, notice as he says, as he speaks of the branches here, he speaks to individual disciples. As a matter of fact, if you want to go ahead and see how clearly he states it, look down at verse 8. This is somewhat a summary of, of the first seven verses. He says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. That's the answer there when individuals say, this is the passage that shows us that, that as long as churches are talking about the Lord Jesus, that he knew that there was going to be a multiplicity of churches. And, and when he talks about the vine, every church is a different branch on that vine. This is a passage that many go to. Friends, when we read this passage, does it ever once talk about the church? Over and over, it is speaking to individual disciples. For example, look beginning at verse 4. Abide in me and I in the multiple churches. 
No, he's speaking to an individual here. And I and you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can multiple churches. No, neither can you unless multiple churches. No, you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me. And friends, we could read on down the rest of those verses. And every time the emphasis is the Lord speaking to individuals. Are you going to abide in your life connected to the vine? As a matter of fact, the plea tonight that we need to see is out of John the 17th chapter. Flip another page in your Bible. and John the 17th chapter, this is the prayer that Jesus prayed before uh, he soon would be going to the garden of, of Gethsemane. There he would pray another prayer. After that he would be arrested and after that he would be crucified. What is on the heart of our Savior as he knows that his end is very, very near Listen to this, and, and I ask you to, to, to look at this with an open mind of what is the Lord wanting His church and His believers to become. Look in verse 21. He's praying in 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they all, all, how many believers? All of them. I want all of them to be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and, that, and, and have loved them as you have loved me. Do you see, he identifies very clearly in 21 that he wants a oneness or he wants a unity just as a unity that God the Father and God the Son have with each other. He says, that's the kind of unity I want among believers. It's God the Father and God the Son. Would it be safe to say, oh, well, well they sim- they're a little different, but they're similar. No, in doctrine, in faith, in belief, they're one. And he says, that's what I want the followers to be. And he even says in the following verses that in so doing, we glorify the Father. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. That is a huge point. What does this multiplicity of churches say to the world about us? But now note, note the fact that Jesus gives us the truth. In 23, when he says that the world may know that you have sent me, what? If the believers are one. I don't fully understand that. I can can kind of put the, the dots together and I can come up with my understanding of it. But what's interesting is just the fact of, of how the Lord says that. So matter of fact, you want the world to believe in Jesus. If you want the world to believe in Jesus, show unity among the believers. And the world will believe that God sent His Son to the earth. You see, number one tonight, I would suggest to you that the straightforward teachings from the Word of God demands that all believers in Jesus Christ be united into His one body. If we truly believe in the Lord, Why would we not do that? But number two tonight, I would say to you that the enlightenment of the age in which we live 
demands the fact that truth must exist. Why is it that we have individuals all around the world that have enjoyed the advancements of the last hundred years? Have you thought about in the last hundred to 120 years the advancements that's been made in medicine? It wasn't that many years ago that we were bleeding folks thinking that that would help them to get well. And now we can harvest a, a heart and, and a, a lung And as that harvesting is taking place in another city in America, a surgery is already beginning in process. And and these organs can be flown across a portion of the United States and they literally can be transplanted into the life of an individual and that heart begins to beat for them and those lungs begin to be filled with air and that individual's life is extended. Friends, do you realize the enlightenment of the age of which we live? In the last hundred years... Civilization before that has never seen the kind of advancements that we have seen. Why? Because people have gone to work day after day saying, let's study and find the truth as it pertains to medicine. Do you realize the advancements we have in, in, in travel and transportation? To think that just a little over 100 years ago, the most common form of transportation was a horse and a horse and a wagon? And to think now of automobiles that can travel 70 miles an hour in a day's time, cover what would take months and months and months to cover previously? And not only that, to think that a shuttle can leave this earth, go into outer space, orbit around, and come back and land, refurbish itself, and then go again? And that's happened in just the last hundred years? Why? Because individuals went to work every day saying, let's do research, let's find out the truth. What is it that would advance us? What is it that would make progress? Think about communication. A little over a hundred years ago, to stand and yell across the field was about the best we could do in long distance communication. The telegraph helped a little bit. And to think that even when I was young, party lines... And only one phone in the house? And you shared it with eight other lines that went down the road with your neighbors? And all you kids that don't know what that means, that means if your neighbor's on the phone, you didn't talk on the phone. And you waited until eight other people got off the phone before you could talk on the phone. And now, every house has a phone or two. Every person has a cell phone. We can get online and communicate email around the world instantly. Instant messaging, friends, how does all of this take place? Because individuals have gone into work day after day saying, what's the truth about how we can advance things? I want to ask you a question. How would you feel about a surgeon that based his practice upon how many people today base their religion? He's coming in for surgery and and you're the patient. And he walks in, and, and he doesn't have scrubs on. He has some old work clothes. He says, hey, how you doing? I tell you why, I love this place. 
It's so convenient. I live just right next door to the hospital. And I tell you what, this hospital's policy is come as you are. Make yourself at home. I tell you what, hey, let me wipe the grease off my hand. I've been changing the oil in my lawnmower. But hey, I tell you what, let me grab a scaffold back here. I'm ready to start this surgery. I tell you what, I love this convenience thing. I tell you, we're going to advance medicine with this kind of attitude. It's just, it's based primarily on you do what is convenient to you. Oh, this is good. You ready for your surgery? Hey, by the way, I didn't have time to get an anesthesiologist. It just wasn't convenient. But we're about ready to start surgery. I don't believe anybody would say that that's a real good way to make advancements in life. Can you imagine in the development department of a cell phone industry? They're going to come up with a battery that will last longer. They're doing the, the R&D on it. And can you imagine the, the man or woman comes to work and, and everybody's sharing their research. How are we going to do this? They've been doing their research and they bring their facts to the table. And then there's this one guy. And he says, well, um, I tell you what, I think that you guys are completely wrong. Well, what's your basis on that? I tell you what, I've just got the best feeling inside about the battery that we already have. I tell you what, I've, I've had good dreams about this battery. I just feel so good about this battery. Listen, I want to tell you something. I've never felt better about a battery in all of my life. I don't believe you'll ever improve. This, this battery is it. I just feel so good about it. Listen, I'm genuine and sincere, and I'm staying with this battery. Imagine being at NASA and imagine trying to decide how much fuel is it going to take to send this craft into orbit and bring it back home. And imagine all of these scientists bringing their research and their calculation to the table. And a guy comes in and says, hey, by the way, I, I asked my grandmother what she thought about this. And, and she says, all you guys are wrong. What's her basis? Oh, nothing. It's just kind of the way we've been as a family. It's our tradition. I can tell by your eyes. You're already sick of the illustrations because they're so ridiculous. Why is it that individuals go to work and every day they raise the flag of truth? It's got to be facts. We have to do research or we're not going to make it in this land. And then they come home on the weekend and they take the flag of truth down and in its place they put up the flag of convenience. They put up the flag of emotion and feel good. They put up the flag of I'm genuine. They put up the flag of tradition. This is what we've always believed in my family. Friends, that's what's turned people away from Christianity in droves. Because there are a lot of intelligent people in this world that they know that they don't want any part of something that is so ridiculous. I remember about eight years ago driving to a study that was one of the most disappointing studies that I've ever been a part of. I was asked to come in and study with this older lady. Her husband sat on the other side of the room on the couch. And it appeared that he was just going to listen. And as we began studying, he very abrasively interrupted. And he said, ah! And he had a German accent. He, and he began to speak up about how, yeah, you're going to open that book. And you're going to begin telling me what we need to do from that book. 
And when you leave, I'll turn on the television. And there'll be somebody standing there in a robe and they'll have the very same book and they'll tell me something different. And both of you guys will say it's truth. And when that show goes off, I can turn it to another station and there'll be somebody else holding the same book and they'll tell me something else. And they too will say it's truth. We don't need Christianity. Friends, I tried every angle I knew how and never made any progress because our Christian culture had already done its damage. That idea that one is as good as another, if it's you getting your way, it may seem appealing. If it's us reaching out to the world and teaching them about God, it is a wedge that drives them away because anybody can know that there has to be a standard of truth. John Mott, the founder of the YMCA, said, the price has been paid by divided Christendom. It is an unbelieving world. Years ago, there was a UPI news release of natives in an island... And the island had finally been opened up for Christian missionaries to come in and to do work. And the spokesman came back and admitted that the missionaries usually do much good. However, there are too many of them and the minds of the natives are confused. They hear the missionaries say they're all Christians, yet they all differ. And so their request now is, bar the missionaries, the people are too confused. Eric Sabati of Uganda said, we were in a land of darkness, we needed Christ, but you brought us denominations. Stephen Neal said, concerning religious division in India, he said, in a missionary environment, one feels ashamed of Christian division much more than in Western countries. To go to a small Indian village and find four churches competing with the souls of these people, or to go to an Eskimo village of 1300 in Alaska and, and find five churches competing for the souls, each claiming the truth but having differing messages, it leaves me shaken and bitterly ashamed. What's the answer? You know, through the years, there have been many religious groups that have said, we have to find unity. And 1925 was one of the biggest conferences to ever try to do that, and it's called the Stockholm Conference. Almost a hundred denominations were brought together with the idea of surely we could do something to unite. And what they came away from out of the Stockholm Conference was this resolution. Doctrine divides. Service unifies. So the word doctrine means teaching. So it's the idea that if we try to all agree on the same teaching, we're only going to fracture more and more. But if we'll just agree upon things that are service-oriented, should you be good to your neighbors? Should you work, reach out to countries that are starving? Should you serve? Oh, everybody can agree upon that. Friends, that's been about 75 years ago. Has it helped? No, why? Because, friends, it's not service that unifies. It is doctrine that unifies. 
Turn with me, if you will, to 2 John, the ninth chapter. 2 John, the ninth chapter. It'll be on about page 1085 or 6 in the Bible that's in your pew. It's in the back of the Bible. 2 John, the, the, it'll be the only chapter that's in 2 John. It'll be the ninth verse. 2 John, the ninth verse. As we think about what the Lord says about doctrine here, would the Lord say, hey, let me tell you what the problem is. The problem's doctrine. And if we just will not be concerned about doctrine, we can find a lot of unity. Here's what the Lord says. Whoever transgresses, and transgress means to go beyond, to step across. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Isn't that interesting? I want you to think right here is the doctrine of Christ. Right here, all the things that God asks us to do, the things He asks us not to do, the things that He says, if you'll do this, your life will be blessed. If you won't do this, your life will be blessed. All of that creates a boundary. And we have to decide, are we going to live within the doctrine of Christ? And someone says, well, that means I don't get to do things my way. That's right. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Are we willing to deny self and say, Lord, I fully submit myself to your teachings? If we do that, we can live in the doctrine of Christ. And what do we have? According to Christ, when we submit ourselves to the doctrine of Christ, we have Christ and we have the Father. What does he say if we say, I do not want to live by the doctrines of Christ? He says, you don't have Christ or the Father. And so, friends, tonight, please understand this. The plea is not, hey, will everyone here believe like I believe? Hey, let's start a church and let's create the system of belief ourselves, and then let's say, everybody, let's be united on what we have deemed to be the appropriate beliefs. Do you realize that no one here, if they're right with God, no one here has their own church? No one. If we're right with God, within the doctrine of Christ, there is a church. And the question is, do I abide within the doctrine of Christ? If so, I have Christ. If I stay within the doctrines of Christ, I have the Father. And so the idea that says... We're never going to unite if we talk about doctrine. And friends, even in our brotherhood, the message probably needs to be boldly proclaimed as much as anywhere. I have a five-page article here from one of our brothers who describes where he teaches, and the students where he teaches. And he talks about their healthy search that his students have, and he says it has nothing to do with them finding the right church. Their healthy search is because they are looking relationally and spiritually for God. You hear that? They're looking for a relationship with God and they're looking to be spiritual and they're not concerned with the doctrine. 
How does that strike you? Someone says, preacher, I think we ought to want a relationship with God. Absolutely. I think we ought to want to be spiritual people. Absolutely. In other words, we're either going to be fleshly or carnal or we're going to be spiritual. Either we're going to have a relationship with God or we're not. So now let's define this. How does one become spiritual? You live within the doctrines of Christ. You have the Father. If you don't live within the doctrines of Christ, you're not spiritual. You don't have the Father no matter what you claim your search is. Or someone says, I just want a relationship. Okay, how do you have a relationship? According to 2 John 9, you have a relationship when you abide in the teachings. You have Christ in the Father. If any man will love me, let him keep my commandments. John 14 and 15. Friends, I beg you, if you have kids in college, you better be talking to them about doctrine. Because they're getting a much different teaching about doctrine. But it's one that has been around for several hundred years. It's the idea that says doctrine divides Seeking a relationship with the Lord and service of Christ is what unifies. And so what happens is, the teachings aren't important anymore. Which church do you want to be a part of? Christ's church or man's church? When we think about authority, I'd like for us to look at three passages very quick and we close this session out. If you would, look with me to Acts the 23rd chapter. What is going to be the authority in our life? As we look for the Lord's church, or maybe I should at this point just simply say, as we look for a church, what are we going to base it on? Acts the 23rd chapter and verse 1, then Paul, Acts 23 and 1, then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, do you remember Paul? Back when he used to be Saul and he persecuted Christians, he dragged them out of his house. When it came time to vote whether or not they would live or die, he told Agrippa, I always voted for them to die. Here's a man that what if he drug your daughter out of the house because she was a Christian and he voted to have her killed? You would think, surely, that he was a horrible man. But you know what this man could honestly say? I never once violated my conscience. Honestly. He thought he was doing the right thing. What does that tell us? An internal authority is never an accurate guide. Oh, this, this has to be right. I've, I've invested my whole life in it. This has to be right. I feel so certain about this. You could have gone up to Saul when he was out persecuting Christians and says, by the way, can I stop you just a moment? You know, you just had that person executed. Yeah? You really feel like that's the right thing to do? Absolutely, 100%. As a matter of fact, I'm getting some documents right now to go to some foreign cities to do the same thing. Friends, there's only one thing on this earth that is divine, that is directly from God, that is inspired, and it's this book that we hold in our hands. Your feelings and your conscience is not inspired. And so an internal guide can never be our authority. 
We need to make sure that we mold ourselves internally by the Word of God, but it can't be the authority. The Word of God is the authority. Let's go over a few more pages, Acts, the 26th chapter, and let's think about an outside authority. What about if we look to other people? And what about if we say, well, the, the people of my religion say that this is what I need to do, and, and they're religious people, and they're very powerful people, so surely they have to be right. Well, some of the most powerful people of Paul's day, we read what they told him to do in verse 10 and 11 of Acts, the 26th chapter. Notice he's telling why he went about persecuting Christians. He says, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority. Ah, oh, Paul, you didn't just do this on your own, did you? No. I was received, I was given authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul, why are you doing this? I feel good about it. This is the right thing to do. Paul, why are you doing this? Some of the highest up in my religion say that this is the thing to do. I have authority from on high. You remember that when the Lord came with that bright light and he spoke to him on the road to Damascus, remember he had papers in his hands from those in his religion that had given him authority to go and persecute. Friends, don't ever believe something because I say it. Don't ever believe something because some religious person tells you that that's the way it is. The only authority on this earth, it's not internal. And it's not external among other people. The only authority is clearly revealed to us in Galatians, the first chapter. Turn over a few more pages in your Bible. It'll be 1,033 on the Bible that's in your pews. 1,033. Notice what Paul boldly proclaims to us beginning Galatians, the first chapter in verse 8. Galatians 1 and 8, but even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that what you have received, let him be accursed. Paul, what about if the gospel of the new covenant is mixed with just a little bit of the old covenant? That's what had happened here in Galatians. And he says, listen, I've given you the gospel of Christ. Don't mix anything with it. Paul, what if apostle comes along and tells us to mix something with it? Let him be accursed. Paul, what if an angel comes along, even an angel from heaven, and tells us to mix something with the gospel? Let them be accursed. Friends, isn't it wonderful that we can know? We can have an answer from God on what our authority ought to be. In Genesis, the first and second chapter, we're taught a valuable lesson even as it pertains to the church. Every seed reproduces fruit after its kind. Do you realize the billions and billions of kernels of corn that have been planted, and without exception, every time 
If they grow at all, they grow a stalk of corn. There's never been an exception to that. In the New Testament, the Lord's church began in Acts the second chapter and notice what they continued in in verse 42. And they continued in the apostles' doctrine. Why? Because that's the seed that has to be planted. What did it grow? It grew Christians. What kind of Christians? Christians. There's no other type of Christian unless you mix some foreign teaching in with Christianity. And then you have to identify it's a blank Christian. But if you don't mix anything with it, and you leave this as authority, the seed, if it was planted back in the first century, it grew only Christians. And if it's planted today, whether it's in Mount Juliet, Ethiopia, El Salvador, Ukraine, it doesn't matter where you plant it, that seed grows the same thing. And it doesn't matter if it's in the first century or the fifth century or the 21st century, it grows the same thing. And that seed also grew a church. It grew a church that belonged to Jesus. And when we plant it again today, it still grows the church that belongs to Jesus. Tonight, I'm going to make an assumption after being in a lot of one-on-one Bible studies. If you've never heard a lesson like this before, you're blown away. Your mind's reeling. You may have a little bit of anger. And you're just trying to grasp, could anything like that really be true? I'm not asking you tonight to believe me because I've said it. I'm asking you tonight, will you put away for just a few moments everything you've ever believed about church and just go back and study the new covenant. See how many churches there were. See who owns it. And what if we do just go back and plant that same seed? And then you and I, we get to make a choice. The church exists. And so we get to make the choice. Do I want to be a part of the Lord's one body or not? Friends, He's not going to come down and force anybody. It's our choice. But we can either be a part of His body or we don't. And the way we become a part of His body is follow His teachings, follow His doctrine. I close with this story. When I was a young preacher, I taught an auditorium Bible class and And in that auditorium Bible class, just sitting about three rows back there where Brother Jim Gregory is, was one of the most powerful men in our congregation. He had been a president of one of the most powerful unions in America. And he'd been so for 25 years. He was gruff. When he spoke, everybody listened. his, His influence and his power could not be hidden, even if he wanted to hide it. And so, as a young man, I just got, and I took my stand when I started teaching that class, and I just put it right in front of him because I wanted to know what was coming. If, if it was going to be tough, I just wanted it head on. And, and so, I remember one, one time in Bible class, I remember making a statement that it just went right along with the lesson that we were studying. I said, you know, I saw a bumper sticker this week, and it really illustrates what we're studying. And, and it had it on the end of each of the lines there. And it said, it said, Jesus says it, I believe it, and that settles it. I said, isn't that wonderful? 
Isn't that wonderful? And it was almost like maybe he had dozed off a little bit. You know how when somebody kind of wakes up? And, and I was about to go on with the next statement, and, and, and I heard some, some voice, kind of a voice in front of me, go, hey, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I thought to myself, what, what could possibly be wrong with that? That's a beautiful statement, isn't it? Jesus said it. I believe it. That settles it. But you know, the fellow was wise. And so even at that moment, I thought, I'm going to look forward to hearing what he has to say about this. Because how could he have a different take on that? He says, son, let me tell you something. There's one too many lines in that bumper sticker. The truth is, Jesus said it, and that settles it. And it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. I stood corrected, and I don't think I'll ever forget that truth as long as I live. Friends, tonight I want to emphasize to you, I don't have a church. And if you have a church, I don't have any interest in it. But the Lord has a church. He said it. And to me, that settles it. And I'm not standing here before you tonight saying, I think I'm right about something, and you ought to do it because I think I'm right. I'm saying that the Lord has said there is one church and He gives us the doctrine for that church and He says if you'll abide with me, you'll have a relationship. You'll be a spiritual person. You'll be a part of my one church. But if I decide to not abide with the Lord and say, but I want a creed from these people. I want a, I want a headquarters on earth from these people. I want counsel to send down word to me from these people. I can make that choice. But in so doing... I'm saying no to the doctrine of Christ. I'm saying no to His church. And just because I believe it, just because my grandmother believed it, just because I'm genuine about it, just because it's so convenient, will not ever change what Christ's doctrine is. And so tonight, if you would like to study further about this church, we would be honored not to tell you what we believe. We would be honored to sit down and just open the Bible and see what the Lord said. If there's anyone at this point that wants to make a public response, if you know that you want to be baptized into Christ tonight for the remission of your sins, if you have been a Christian but have strayed from what God wants you to be and you want to come home, Friends, there's no one like our God. There's no one that can forgive and forget like our God. There's no one who can love and show mercy like our God. There's no one that can rejoice when sinners come home like our God. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.